there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. We have so many possibilities. There's no ceiling in sight for us. What we can become, what we can be, the possibilities for us at this stage in our development are apparently endless. Our brain is the most complex organ of any creature on Earth. It is five times as large as the average brain of a mammal with the same body size. This is due to expanded frontal lobes and expanded the vision part of the brain is also greatly enlarged and expanded. The frontal lobes involve self-control, planning, reasoning, and abstract thought. The human brain contains between 50 and 100 billion neurons. 10 billion of those neurons pass signals to each other via 100 trillion synaptic connections. I don't know that anybody's actually counted them, but I think that these are just general figures to give you an idea of what's going on. They can see groups of these neuronic nerve ways, and they know that there are this many groups, and there are this many, approximately this many in a bundle. And so this bundle over here will have 10 million, and this bundle over here will have 50 million. And they add it all up, and they figure that there's 100 trillion synaptic connections, 10 billion neurons passing signals through those synaptic connections. We may use only 20% of the nerve cells in the midbrain to form memories, which means that 80% of those brain cells in the midbrain, we're going to identify what that is from a work point of view in a minute or two, but we may have 80% unused, blank, waiting to be put into action. What could you do with 80% more memory? We don't know what we could do. Men and women sometimes use different parts of the brain to do the same task. I found that very interesting. Our ignorance of our own brain, how it works, is as vast as our ignorance of our inner life. They correspond a great deal. Other animals, birds, and insects have highly developed instincts, but little ability to adapt. The thing that makes us different because of our huge brains is adaptability. Adaptability is a good definition for intelligence. Intelligence is the ability to be flexible. Flexibility is the ability to be adaptable. So adaptability and intelligence are really the same thing. Flexibility and intelligence are really the same thing. I have four geese. I have had dozens of geese. I have watched them from an egg to a full-grown goose. And I noticed that they all act the same way. They all act just like geese, even though none of the geese have ever seen a body of water. They all know exactly what to do when they get to water. They all preen exactly the same way. They all act exactly the same way when they're around water. From the time that they come out of the egg to the time that they die. That is instinct. In nature, the instinctive center operates by the law of octaves. What that means is they can't do anything other than what they do. 
So if a bird is building a nest and the nest is partway finished and someone comes along and damages or destroys or removes the nest, the bird can't pick up where it left off because of the law of octaves. It has to go back to the dough. It's like we talked about this when the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. There are a lot of people who have to recite the alphabet to get to a letter. What's the letter that comes after? And then they have to recite a couple of the letters. And that's because it's in the moving instinctive center. It's done by rote. It's patterned. It follows the law of octaves a little bit more. Now, instinctive center really follows the law of octaves. Moving center does not so much, but it still does. Do leads to ray, which excites me, and it goes on like that. So the bird has to start the nest from do again and rebuild the nest. It can't pick up where it left off. And geese can't pick up where the last generation left off. They have to pick up at the doe, where geese pick up, and dogs, and cats, and all of them. And some animals have a little bit more adaptability, and others have no adaptability. And it seems to be directly related to brain size. Adaptation isn't the usual feature of the instinctive center. Intelligence, as I've said, is the power of adaptation. The instinctive center gives meaning to the life of all beings. It makes chickens act like chickens. It makes rats act like rats. It makes geese act like geese. It makes people act like people. We all act differently, but if someone from another planet were observing us, they would know immediately the difference between a person and a buffalo, and not just by the body size and mass, but by the way they acted. And people, though we may act in many various forms, we act in one general way, instinctively. At birth, the instinctive center is not blank but it is highly developed, giving us our early meaning. We have a couple of instinctive things that are going on when we're born. We breathe, we blink, our hearts are beating, our lungs are pumping air, our blood is circulating, we're digesting, we know how to suck. There are certain things that instinctively give our life meaning. Without the instinctive center, we would come completely blank with no meaning. But the instinctive center begins giving our life meaning. The meaning of a chicken is to be a chicken. It's in its instinctive center. The meaning of a duck is to be a duck. It's in its instinctive center. The meaning of a rat is to be a rat. It's in its instinctive center. That's why they do what they do, instinctively. Synapses permit the passage of nerve impulses from one cell to another. I know that this is a lot of science, but it really does relate to something in the work that we need to talk about. There are networks ascending to the brain which carry inwards all sense impressions from the external world. So these synapsis networks, this, what did I say, there were 10 billion neurons that pass signals to each other via 100 trillion synaptic connections. It's mind-boggling, and it's fine, because your mind should be boggled, because this is not for your mind. We're just titillating the mind so that it has something to do so that we can get past it to what really matters. The brain is a very important thing. The mind is important too, but it's important as a servant, not as a master. Unfortunately for us, our minds are our masters, and they need to be our servants. But when you don't know what else there is, it's pretty hard to have it be the master. When you think that your mind is all you are, then you think you are the master. There are vast networks descending from the brain as well, terminating in muscle bundles that produce action. So we have these networks of neurons that are receiving all of these signals from the outside world, and they're going into the brain. And then we have these networks of neurons that are descending from the brain, going into all the muscles, and they are making action possible. So something happens out there in a flash at the speed of light. It hits the brain and then sends a reaction. What determines that reaction? Well, in many cases, the instinctive center does. 
But between these two highways are association areas that determine what your response will be to some outer stimulus. Remember the midbrain part that I talked about, that we use only 20% of the nerve cells in the midbrain to form memories? Associations and memories are very similar, and in many cases the same. We have a memory, we have an association with that memory, and so we have a reaction based on the association and the memory. So something out there stimulates something, it passes through the network to the brain, passes through that association area of the brain, and it picks something up and then fires something back from there. We use 20% of that part of our brain. You start to see where I'm going with this? Don't just look at me. <laughs> you start to see where I'm going with this. Yeah? Where I'm going with this is if there's 80% of these cells in the midbrain that we haven't used, why not use them? Why not begin to train them? Why not begin to consciously deal with associations? Why not begin to consciously start to deal with all of these impressions coming in? What could we do? What possibilities would we have if we were willing to work a little bit in that area? Because of our brain, we don't have to allow an impulse to terminate the same way every time. We're adaptable. We have intelligence. A chicken doesn't have a choice. You put a line down in front of a chicken and it has to look at the line. It doesn't have a choice about it. The chicken may know. It may have seen 200 other chickens get its head chopped off when somebody did that. But it doesn't have any choice. You draw that line, that chicken puts its head down. So that's the way it is. There are certain things you can count on instinctively because they cannot change their behavior. But we can. Found in, in Japan, there were these monkeys, and one of them one day took some fruit or something, and he took it down and washed it in the water. And it was like only one monkey out of thousands and thousands of monkeys. Now all the monkeys do it. They all learned to wash their food from one monkey. I don't want to sound like I'm saying we're monkeys, but you have one Buddha, of course there's not one, but you had one Buddha who everyone calls the Buddha, who taught a lot of monkeys how to meditate and how to live a middle path, how to live a better life, how to expand their consciousness, how to love, how to have compassion, how to evolve into a different order of being. And you've got to admit, during the Vietnam War, when those Buddhist monks would go and set themselves on fire and sit there and meditate through the whole thing until their body burned and just fell over, that was pretty impressive. I don't know about you, but it was mighty impressive to me. When I saw that, I thought, that guy has something. Now, I've seen presidents and kings and prime ministers and queens and people come and go, but no one ever impressed me like that. Now, maybe that's just me. Some other people are impressed by Bill Gates and his money or by Donald Trump and his ability to build things or by something else or by somebody in Saudi Arabia being able to buy a completely 100% sterling silver car. That doesn't impress me. But someone who has that kind of self-control impresses me. And it impressed me when I was a child. And it's impressed me ever since. And it's something that I've desired. And it's something that I've worked for. And it's something that I try to get other monkeys to work for. Not saying we're monkeys, but in a lot of ways, we're a lot like monkeys. Okay, chimpanzees. What's the DNA we share with a chimpanzee? 99.8% or something like that? I think it's like 99.8%, 99.6%. Yeah, it's, it's almost 100%. It's like almost complete. It's almost total, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. And you look at the behavior of chimpanzees and you look at the behavior of people and say, well, I, I can see that. People can behave better, and chimpanzees can be trained to behave better too, and people can be trained to behave better. I think if we put as much effort into training chimpanzees as we do to training and educating children, we might get, in fact, we do get better results, especially in the math area and recognition area. They're a lot faster at math. I've seen these things where Japanese, uh, these training programs for chimpanzees where they put a chimpanzee up against a human being on math problems. 
chimpanzees whoop them, man, every time. I mean, just bam, bam, bam. They get a treat every time they do it. They get the right answer. They do it so fast. They flash something on a screen, television screen. And then the chimpanzee has to touch the screen in the order that it came up. And if it gets one wrong, it doesn't get the treat. If it gets them all, it gets the treat. It beat humans' hands down. I mean, just nobody could do it the way the chimpanzee could. And it was because it was, had been trained to do that. And it was adaptable, it adapted. So it had some intelligence, more than a chicken, for example, or a snail, or whatever organism, animal, insect we're talking about. I do digress, but it's all good. We're adaptable. Our goal is to become more conscious of how we take things as we now are. The problem with us is we don't know how we now are. We only know how we imagine we are. And this is universal, unless we're talking about the Ascended Masters, which we're not. We're talking about just us monkeys, the monkeys within the sound of my voice. And so we don't know how we are. This work is to help us to become conscious of how we are, how we are now, and how we take things. Our method is self-observation. The first step is to become aware of the mechanical way that we take things now and stop calling that process I. Because it's a process. But we have been calling that process I. We've been saying, I am the process. But what esoteric teachings are saying is, no, 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 no. You're not the process. You are what is behind the process. You are what holds the process. You are the beingness, the space, the intelligence in which that process can happen. Well, that's a little difficult to conceptualize, but that's okay. I don't want you to conceptualize it. I want you to let it be. Just let it be. Just let yourself be the space in which the process of life happens. Be the beingness, be the ether in which sound can move, through which light can pass, through which thoughts can happen. Just that. Be that. That means you are not those things that you contain. That's all you need to know about that. You don't need to know anything else. If you can know that, if you can experience that, then you can begin to see what the process is. But as long as we're calling the process I, our identification and survival instincts will keep us from seeing a lot of it because we have judgments about what may be happening. And those judgments will prevent us from seeing that we're doing that. At the same time, we also study how not to take things the same way. The second step is called self-remembering. So the first step is called self-observation. The second step is called self-remembering. The reason self-remembering is not the first step is because you can't remember yourself until you can begin to observe yourself. So you have to begin to observe yourself first. Now again, here we are, what self can we observe? The only self we can observe is the self that is not us. You can't observe the self that is you. You can only observe the self that is not you. So if you can observe it, it is not you. So if you are observing something that you are calling you, that you're saying I to, you are observing a process within yourself, but you are not observing yourself. For purposes of understanding this, we call self-observation, we call it self-observation, but it really isn't because you can't really observe yourself. You can only observe the self that you are now or that you think you are now, that with which you are identified now. The second step being self-remembering, studying how not to take things the same way. This is what the work calls the first conscious shock that we can give the human machine. Human machine being this process that we are calling I. To do this, we must develop consciousness at the level of incoming impressions. Consciousness at some other level isn't going to do us any good. We have to have consciousness at the level of incoming impressions. If we don't have consciousness at the level of incoming impressions, we're like a duck or a chicken or a monkey or anything else. But it was the monkey, the one monkey, 
that suddenly had a flash of consciousness at the level of incoming impressions and washed its food. Now, how many times did it wash its food before the other monkeys caught on? Well, I don't know, but I guarantee you it wasn't just once. So it's like, is consciousness a matter of monkey see, monkey do? Well, yes, at a certain point it is. That's exactly what it is. And that's why we're in groups, because that's literally how it works. That's why we have teachers, because it is a matter of monkey see, monkey do. How many things have you seen me do that you've said, oh, I can't do that. I want to be able to do that. Some people call it encouragement. Some people call it inspiration. Some people call it monkey see, monkey do. Some people call it a cult. It really doesn't matter what people call it. It is what it is. And what people call it is nothing more than their associations and their judgments and their identifications with it. But it still is what it is, and it's the way things work. So the monkey cult of washing their food is one way of looking at it. The monkey see, monkey do cult of washing their food is another way of looking at it. A flash of consciousness, intelligence, and adaptation spreading throughout a colony and finally throughout a whole island is another way of looking at it. Perhaps a more scientific, less identified, more detached way of looking at it, and from my perspective, and my perspective is one of consciousness, a better way of looking at it because it more precisely defines what is actually happening without the static and the noise of the negative associations. Monkey see, monkey do, or cult, or bad and wrong, or judgments. A good scientist doesn't make judgments. A good scientist observes. A bad scientist makes judgments, and there is no such thing as a bad scientist. You're either a scientist or you're a judge, but you can't be both. Now, you can be a scientist in one moment and a judge in another moment. We know that. You can scientifically observe something and then judge it in another person two minutes later or 30 seconds later or three nanoseconds later. We're very quick. Remember, we have these marvelous brains, the most complex organ of any creature on Earth, and it's fast. All this is dependent upon self-observation. If you could be conscious of a person and your reaction to that impression, because when I say that impression, I mean when you are conscious of a person, the truth is the only thing you're really conscious of is an impression. That's all that a person is. A person is an impression or a bunch of impressions, a series of impressions. And then we add to that associations. But the truth is when you can be conscious of a person and your reaction to that impression at once, and you can do that, those two things at once. You can be conscious of the person and aware, conscious at the same time to that impression. So here's that person and here's this impression. Where is the impression? The impression is here. Where is the person? The person is there. When you can be conscious of that person and this impression at the same time, you are self-remembering. You are giving yourself that first conscious shock. You are doing something. You are the first monkey washing the fruit. Every time you do that, you are building neuronic pathways in your midbrain, and you're doing it consciously. Now, bring to that the ideas of this work, and you have now built one of the finest highways that your brain could ever have because you're taking these positive ideas and you're building positive associations in a conscious way between the person and your impression and your reaction. Do you see how valuable this can be? 80% of your midbrain is waiting for you. It's just a blank piece of paper waiting for you to start working on it because we have so much more possibility. The 20% that we're using, we're not using all the time. And that includes everything, all the mechanical and all the conscious, which, of course, isn't that much, the conscious, but <laughs> the mechanical is, is huge. But think of it. Think of how complex we are, how complex a human being is. And they're only using 20% of that. Can you imagine what is possible for us if we have been able to do this with just 20%? 
People are flying things in space. People have stepped on the moon. People go from one continent to another continent like and have lunch. It's like we're talking about incredible things that this little bit has done. The 20% is being used. The 80% is waiting to be programmed, to be used. Ordinarily, we're not aware of the event and our reaction to it simultaneously. This is called, in this system, sleep. Ordinarily, we're not aware of what we're saying when we're talking. That's because we talk mechanically. We talk in our sleep. If stimulus from outside always calls up the same reaction, the same feelings, the same words from within us, we are said in this system to be asleep. We are also said in Christianity, in esoteric Christianity, to be asleep. Could you not stay awake with me for one hour? Is what Jesus said to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. It means that we're unintelligent because we can't adapt. You're not much better than a chicken or a goose. Take your pick. Or a rat. Choose whatever you want. But we're not much better than that when we're asleep because we're simply reacting instinctively the same way that they do. As I said, it's enough for life to go on. Life will go on. You don't have to be conscious at all, ever, in your whole life. Your instinctive center will take you to the grave. You could be quite successful. You could be a millionaire. You could be the president of the United States and never be conscious. Outside of the few moments when maybe you're in an accident and all of a sudden you become aware. Or maybe you get really sick and all of a sudden you have this weird feeling and you... And you're grateful to be alive and you see everything and you smell everything and you hear everything and you, you are so heightened and everything is vibrant and alive. But it passes and you go back to your ordinary life of being the president or being a millionaire or being a serial killer or whatever. You can make it to the grave just fine without ever doing any of this. This is not necessary. The same neuronic pathways are followed if we continue to react the same way, have the same feelings, the same words. We can use those 20, that 20% and just be fine. Only by working to reach higher levels of consciousness do we have the possibility of awakening. When I say working, I mean working. Connie said to me, what is the work? One day she said, what is the work? She had looked on the internet and somebody else had something they called the work. And she said, it wasn't what you're talking about. <laughs> no, it wasn't. That's true. I've seen a lot of things called the work. And it's not what I'm talking about. It's effort. It's right effort based on a system of ideas that has been passed down to humanity from higher levels, higher beings. I'm not saying that they weren't human, but I'm saying humans who realized the full possibility of being human, the full possibility of what you were created to become, what you could be. And they did that. And then they started to teach the other monkeys. And so it's passed down from one monkey to another. And often monkeys get it wrong. Often monkeys get creative on their own, decide they'll put a little ego spin on it, a little special pride spin on it. Well, this will be my special way of washing this food, and I have a better way of doing it. And you'll have monkeys who are selling washed food, and on and on and on and on and on. And you can see how that goes. And the next thing you know, you have the religions, and you have the traditions, and you have the schools, and you have the internet, and you have get enlightened here for just nine ninety five a day. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, so... We don't want to talk about that. You know how I get with that. <laughs> I think it's way comical. Thank you. <laughs> Diana is so funny. Have you ever noticed that Diana likes to say naughty words? She really enjoys saying naughty words. Oh, she just... Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's what makes it the shock value, the shock value of it. It's an interesting thing to observe in yourself, Diana. You now have the... Yes. <laughs> When we take impressions voluntarily, the associative 
pathways they follow are different than those taken involuntarily. You can see the difference between voluntarily and involuntarily. Involuntarily is the way we take them all the time. The chicken way, it's a duck way, it's the goose way, you know. Goose way, it's a safe way for most people. We can gradually learn to take impressions more and more consciously. When I say gradually, I mean this is not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen instantaneously. It's not even going to happen in a few years. It's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's going to be hard work. That's why it's called the work, because it takes effort, and it takes a lot of effort, and it takes a lot of the right kind of effort. People can make the wrong kind of effort for years and get very little from it. Voluntarily means I see myself taking this impression in this way, and I notice the reaction to it. It's hard to do. Think about it. Think about seeing yourself reacting to something in a certain way and just noticing it, not stopping it. Because what we want to do every time is stop it. Oh, no, stop it. What if people see? What if people hear? What if people know? This is not right. This is wrong. I caught myself this morning. I got a flash of anger, and I caught myself stuffing it. And I said, okay, I, I don't want to stuff it, but I don't want to have it either. So what can I do? I noticed that my respiration had increased. I was breathing heavy and powerfully. So I knew, aha, that's anger. That's, I know what that is. That's anger. And then my mind said, but you don't get angry. And I said, yeah, right. <laughs> and I'm breathing differently. And the breath never lies. The breath never lies. You can always trust your breath to tell the truth, no matter what a liar you are, no matter how many associations you've got in place, no matter what a poser you are, no matter, no matter how many facades you have up, your breath will tell the truth. And so I watched my breath and I told the truth because it's never a good idea to lie about your breath because you'll die if you lie about your breath. And then you don't have to worry about anything, maybe. So voluntarily means I see myself taking this impression in this way and I notice the reaction to the impression. In that state, something is added to your way of living and that something is called consciousness. <laughs> Can you see that when you become conscious of something like that, without judging it, just become conscious of it, just look at it, just be aware, that's all. You're not asked to do anything else. Allow the light to do its work. So what did I get from seeing that I was angry and allowing myself to breathe in anger? Well, what I got was... Nothing. I simply got that. I got that awareness. I didn't get anything else. Am I still angry? Well, no. What happened to it? It went away. As I noticed it, it went away. I didn't do anything to make it go away. I just let it be, and it went away. That's all. The hard part of the work is not what the light does. The hard part of the work is letting the light in past all of our self-justification, imagination, our lies, our pictures of ourselves, all that stuff that makes it so difficult to let the light in. That's where the work is concerned. Allowing that stuff to drop away, not allowing that stuff to come in and block the light and cast shadows in the light. This is what the work is about, adding something to your way of living. And that something is consciousness. You don't have to take things as you have always taken them. This is such great news. This opens so many possibilities. So let's say you always, when you see this, you always go and eat this. You don't have to do that. When you hear that, you always feel this way. You don't have to do that. When you see this happen, you always have to react in this way because you always have. You don't have to do that. There are other possibilities open to you. That's what this work is about. So last week, we really started our rotation of the work, starting fresh. This week is the pickup on that, these two important things, self-observation and self-remembering. The first conscious shock you don't have to take things the way you always have. You can take them in a different way. You have intelligence. You can change your automatic behavior. You can adapt yourself to changing external events, developing new neuronic pathways, leading to the transformation of your being. 
That is, in a nutshell, what this is about. That is what esoteric Christianity is about. That is what esoteric Buddhism is about. That is what esoteric Mohammedism is about. That is what esoteric everything is about. It all is about that same thing. Now, they may have different ways of saying it, and that's fine, because we need different ways of saying it. That's right that there are different ways of saying it. And there are different cultures and different people and different ideas, and so there should be different ways to present the same thing. But it is the same truth, and it is very powerful, and it will transform your being if you will apply it directly to yourself. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.